Now, let me pray. I got into some things. Father, again, thank you for this day, for this group. I ask you to continue to work in our hearts and develop us into the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, those of you that are here last year for the storm, unique year, just not planning on that, bam, all of a sudden everything changed. Uh, this year, COVID, bam, everything changes. You're really living through some weird times in, in uh, both at Silver Birch Ranch and, and in the world in which you live. That's not unusual, except for the fact that your generation, my generation, we went years and years without that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, some really tough times have happened. Um, what I do want to do today is kind of talk to you through some things uh, with what's going on in the nation that, that you as young people really need to embrace and look at and become aware of and make decisions personally about something. Because the culture, the nation that you're a part of is, is really not in good shape. Now, I know I can say that to you, and you're going, yeah, I know, I understand that. Yep, okay, it isn't. The problem is that nobody seems to know what to do about it. And, and because of that, there's other problems that are starting to happen. So what I want to do this summer as I meet with you is, is talk about some things that you can do that, that can help, maybe not the nation, that's up to God, but can help put you in a position where we can make a difference in the world in which we live. Um, one of the things that I want to start with is just what's going on debt-wise in our nation because it, it'll fit into the other stuff I'm talking about. If you look what I have on the screen, <coughs> excuse me, COVID-19. <coughs> no, I just inhaled my own saliva. That's what happened. <laughs> when Ronald Reagan won his first election in U.S., national debt was less than one trillion. Less than a trillion. All right, who, who let's see, I need a volunteer. Ryan, come on up here. All right, Ryan, I want you to help everyone out there understand what $1 trillion looks like. Thank you. Not even close. No. No. All right, stay there. We'll figure it out. Just let me put a little more perspective, because I'll, I'll, I'll ask you some. When Barack Obama entered the White House, the debt was set at $10.6 trillion. When Republicans took control... Of the House of Representatives in 2010, it was about 14 trillion. Now it is 25 trillion. Okay, that's a debt. Our nation right now is printing one billion dollars a day in money that we can't back with anything. Just money that's meaningless. One billion a day. Does that matter to you? How? How? Do you live as if it matters? Yeah, do you live today as if that matters? No, he doesn't. No, and that's not unusual. That's why I had you up here. I can pick on you because you have a thick skin. The, the bottom line really is, okay, these numbers don't mean anything to anybody, right? I mean, they're, they're huge. And we've lived, and how many of us, how many of you have actually been adversely affected because of any of those numbers? So it don't mean anything to you. Thanks. Let me, let me give you a perspective. If you can think of it, a, a, a trillion is a million million. So if you think a million is a lot, it's a million million. 
or it's a thousand billion. That's a lot. Or let's put it this way. If you spent $1 million a day, if you spent $1 million a day since Jesus was born, you still would not have spent $1 trillion yet. Try and put your head around that one. A million a day since Jesus was born. Till now, you still haven't spent a trillion. We're 25 of those in the hole. I should say we are as a nation. If a, if a person's salary is 40,000, if you made 40,000 a year, it would take 25 million years to earn a trillion dollars. If you spend $1,000 every second, you'd need 31 years to spend it. It's interesting when I look at that. It might be meaningless to you, and that's my whole point. There's something that happens to a culture when things that are very important become meaningless. And it's not a good result. And, and it can happen not just on money. Let, let me give you a, an educational formula for disaster, if I can do this. This is, everything follows patterns. Okay, and if you go into history, you can see that there's a pattern in history. There's, there's a pattern for things that happen. Um, you, you, can, you can follow the patterns. The first step in, in the demise of a nation is really the demoralization of the nation. Demoralization, taking away the standards, making sure that there are none. For example, it's critical, critical words, and if you demoralize a nation, critical words need to be redefined. Because words already have meaning. So, so back when I was a kid, when my parents were a kid, marriage had a meaning, right? When you demoralize a nation, you, you change the definition that's already there. If you ever hear people argue about certain things, uh, it, they, they would argue the fact that you can't redefine something that's already defined. They say, oh, we're just clarifying. No, then you're changing the meaning. But it already has a meaning. And so what a culture does is they begin to redefine things, and that's the first step in the demoralization process. The second is belief becomes the basis for truth rather than truth for belief. So then before you know it, people are saying, well, this is what I believe. This is what I believe. And we start respecting that as truth. You see, it's not based on truth anymore, it's based on belief. And belief then is something that only happens because I decide that I wanna believe it. So now somebody can say, well, I believe this about marriage, I believe this about homosexuality, I believe this about food, whatever. You know, and, and basically that becomes their truth. Well, truth isn't a belief system. Belief has to be based on something then the new deviant class is the one who holds to absolute truth and becomes a threat to the modern society. So then what happens is there's a whole new class that's developed that are deviants. And now the deviants are the ones that still hold to the original definition of marriage, whatever else might take place. So you've taken a culture and you've demoralized it. For example, some of the simple things. I started out talking about something that was kind of generic, debt. You know, our nation's all these 
trillion dollars in debt. I'm saying, you know, that's not really not a good thing. Why hasn't that affected the people of our nation to where they're actually aghast at it? They're angry about it. Because we've already been demoralized. People say, well, we need to do it. We need to do it for your, your comfort. We need to do it for you. We need to take it. It's kind of like if you have a credit card. Any of you um, ever overspend on a credit card and wish you didn't? And, and the thinking normally is, oh, I, I, uh, I'm, uh, I don't have the money, but I really need to get this because I really need this now. And then you get the bill. And you realize how much that cost you. And you go, well, man, I really did need it then. Yeah, you, you did, but you didn't think it through. And for some reason, your belief that you needed it then was so strong that it changed what you actually did, and, and you enslaved yourself now in the future. You see, what happens after demoralization is, is we become a complacent people. Complacency is exactly what I talked to Ryan about. It's like, does it really matter, Ryan, that we're 25 trillion in debt? And the answer really is for your generation in my group is no, it hasn't affected me. So we're not doing anything about it. We don't do anything about things that don't affect us. Think about how self-centered that is for a moment. My generation, you know, I'm in the age bracket where I'm gonna slip out of here and leave this mess with you. I'm going, yeah. I get to wreck the place and then leave you to clean it up. See, that's not right. That's the whole complacency thing. It's so big, it's so confusing. What happens to a nation when it gets so big and it gets so confusing? Confusion, really, it, it leads to helplessness, leads to inaction. When you're confused, you begin to do nothing. How many of you think we need to make a change in, in national leadership of some sort? How many of you believe politicians, when they speak, and they tell you you're gonna do something, how many of you believe that they're gonna do it? Hmm. So what are you gonna do about it? Here's what you're gonna say. We can't do anything about that. My vote doesn't count that much. My... See, the complacency starts to come in. We can't do anything about the debt. It's too big. The number is brain, yeah, it's too big. So I'm just gonna go for pizza. I'm gonna to continue to live my life the way I want to. I, we can't do anything about the lying power. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go out to eat with my friends. My, you guys wanna watch a movie? Again, I'm not trying to say you should go out there and say, let's go change the world right now, whatever. I'm just saying, what happens is complacency takes over. It, it's the idea that I can't do anything, so we don't do anything. Then people begin to focus on themselves. In the middle of complacency, what happens is you begin to be focused on you. Because you begin to think, I'm the only one I need to take care of, I'm the only one that makes sense to me, I'm the only one. So now we're focusing on self. And as you begin to focus on yourself, because you can control that, the self-focus leads to narcissism, and that causes a plague of depression, anxiety, and suicide. Is our nation struggling with uh, depression, anxiety, and suicide right now? 
Is the answer really medicine? Or is there another cause of it that's going on? Well, I'm not saying that we shouldn't go to doctors and maybe temporarily treat it with something or whatever it might be, but is the answer just nothing? Just taking meds, just living with it. See, that's complacency again. And, and, and what happens after a while, because we've been demoralized and, and everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and because of the complacency that's taken place, the next thing that happens is a crisis. And the crisis leads to dependency. Here's what's interesting. The crisis will always lead to dependency. But it'll lead to dependency on government, drugs, alcohol, money. It'll lead to dependency. Self-focused dependency. If the crisis leads you to God and dependent on him, that's a good crisis. Because then he'll change things. If you uh, are led to government and you begin to de depend on government, you're going to be in trouble. This, by the way, is the formula that was put into place by the KGB and some, as far as I understand, some of the communist, communist governments 30 years ago. This is the formula they followed in general. Because once you could get people dependent, then all of them are your servants because they're dependent on you. I want to share this verse with you. 2 Timothy 1, 6 to 7. For this reason I remind you to fan the flame of gift, the flame, the gift of God, which is in you from the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I want you to focus on the last word there, self-control. What God gives us is the ability to know what's right and to align our lives with it. That, he gives us that. But we have to choose to do that. When you think about it, there were, there were times in history where, where national, it was a mess nationally. I mean, take a look at some of the, the real heroes of the faith. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. What'd they do? They stood up to King Nebuchadnezzar. Did God use them? Yeah. Did anyone think that that kingdom was salvageable? Probably not. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar had to go through a whole process of, of young people who were dedicated to God and willing to be used of him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to walk into a furnace. If you look back to Daniel chapter 1, and you've heard me speak to kids, you, you'll know I keep pounding away. They had, at one time, chose, they, they resolved in their heart that they would not do wrong. See, that's what they did. I'm not going to do wrong. That's the decision they made. That's really, the whole point for today that I want you to get is, that's the decision you need to make. There are definitions of things. There are God's definitions. You need to listen to them and resolve in your heart. You will always listen to them then what happens is he could make you a Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. Or maybe a Daniel. Or maybe a Joseph. Or maybe an Esther. You know what I mean? These are people who actually affected the world in which they live because of their obedience to God. 
See, the, the big problem that we have, the reason we go complacent is because we really feel helpless. Do you guys know that because God is your father, you're not helpless? You don't have to be complacent. You don't have to say nothing can be done. No, something can be done. You can obey God and let him do his thing. Go, wow, I don't know if that'll change anything. That's not up to you. Do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got together one day and said, yeah, let's go change the whole kingdom, man. No, they were captives. They weren't going to change that kingdom. They probably didn't even have anything to do with it. All of a sudden, they're captives. They're with Daniel and the king saying, eat the right food. And they won't do it. It's like, you guys, you guys always got to cause trouble. Oh, really? We're causing trouble? We know what God said. We're listening to him, and we're the troublemakers. God goes, got your back. Oh, by the way, you're going to have the thrill of walking in the furnace. You guys are never going to forget this. This is going to be a thrill. Oh, you didn't know that going in, though. One of the things that will limit your ability to enjoy the giftedness that God has given you is your lack of discipline. Seriously, if you look at what is going on, the thing that you want to do is get in the habit of always being one when you know what's right, when you know what it is, you do it. When you know what's right, you do it. That's what discipline is. And that's really all I'm asking you to do as young people. When you know what's right. Now, you, there, there are very few things that are right, by the way. Yeah, you know, if you come up with too big of a list, I, the Bible's very simple. There's a God, you're not him. We know that. Don't act like you're God. Okay? A, when you know what's right, do what's right. Let me ask you this. Will you always feel like doing what's right? No. That's not, I didn't say feel like doing what's right. I said do what's right. That's hugely different. And that happens right now. While you're sitting in a chair now, while you're doing this kind of thing, what you're doing is you're thinking, when I know what's right, I'm always going to do what's right. And therefore, when it comes to a chance, an opportunity for you to do what's right, you do it. You say, yeah, but it'll make me uncomfortable. Yeah, think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think of Elijah. He made it even harder. Let's pour water on the thing up on Mount Carmel. You know, these guys did what was right. And, and then God used them. So the commitment has to be, I'm going to do what's right. Sometimes um, we don't see that the lack of obedience in our life affects the nation and the people around us. I want to promise you this, that every time that you disobey, you do things you shouldn't do, it affects other people. And you may think that's not fair. It doesn't matter what you think in that sense. It does affect other people. If I'm a bad father, if I'm a self-centered father, I hurt my children by being self-centered. See, you can say, well, that's not right. It does, though. David here, in this particular illustration, 2 Samuel 24, he, he counted the troops, and he knew that he shouldn't, but he counted them anyway. Now, there isn't a real good reason why he counted them. We don't. The Bible doesn't say, here's his motivation. The indication is, is that he was counting them. He wanted to feel good about the power that he had, and he wanted to be able to trust the troops that he had. Now, where should you trust me? In God. Do you all know that your trust should be in God? 
Okay, so since we know that, that's one of the truths. So we know that. So when it's not in God and he shows you it's not, you need to do something about it. There's a couple of boards that I'm on and some, once in a while I'm sitting on a board and, and they'll say, how much money as a ministry, church, whatever the ministry is, how much money should we have in the bank? And my answer is usually the same. It's like, I don't know. And they go, well, you're a very valuable board person. But here's what I do know. However much we have, if you trust it, it's evil. Why? Because we don't trust money. We trust God. That doesn't mean you don't have money in the bank, by the way. It means that you don't trust money. Now, here's the problem. If you are trusting money, maybe you need to give it away. You can have money and not trust it. It probably doesn't matter. But if you are trusting it, then maybe you need to give it away to somebody. Because you're going to find that trusting God is what matters. You see, David went here. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know their number. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. While the eyes of my Lord, the king, still see it. But why does the Lord my king delight in this thing? John, that he knew, you don't want to do this, David. This is evil. You, do not, you know God doesn't want you to have that number. Why? Again, it doesn't say specifically, but the context is clear. He's king, wants to know his power, wants to know his authority. We know pride's wrong. We know trusting in ourselves and our health and our money and our status. How many in America have trusted in our nation, our wealth, our, our, our social system? We've trusted in it. Let me ask you this. Did the Bible ever say that a nation should take care of the orphans and widows? Or did it say the church should take care of the orphan and widows? See, how easy it is for us to start looking at ways to not trust God. David was doing that. Here's what's interesting. I'm not going to read this all to you, but I want to I kind of tell you what he did here. So David realized after he counted the troops that he was wrong. I don't know if you've ever done this before. You did something, you know you shouldn't have done it. So then you felt guilty, right? So you felt guilty. So then you go to God and you basically say something like this, God, I was wrong. And what you're really saying is, I hate this feeling of guilt. God, remove the guilt from me. I don't want to feel guilty, God. Notice that you didn't say, I'm wrong and I don't ever want to do that again. And I don't, I, I, you haven't said that. You just don't want to feel guilty. I wonder what national repentance would even look like. It starts when people repent themselves in a real way, not just to get rid of the guilt. Here's what happened, though. David said, you know, I don't like this guilt. God, remove the guilt from me. This is one of those passages that a lot of times you don't get heard taught because it's a rough one. Because God basically doesn't forgive David when he asks for it. Not here. He does in a minute, but he doesn't here. He says... No. So in this passage, he goes and he, he confesses, but didn't go anywhere because he, he was trying to remove the guilt. 
Verse 12, go say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do them to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to your land or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you or will there be three days of pestilence in your land? So God pretty much comes to him and says, David, your sin, your evil, you're the leader, has caused this problem. Pick one of the three punishments. Now, wait a minute, God, I said I was sorry. No, you want your guilt removed. You're not sorry. Pick one of them. David says, I, you're God, I'm not picking one of them. I mean, you pick one of them. So what happened? So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time, and there died the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. David was watching 70,000 men die because of his disobedience. Whoa. Remember earlier I said what you need to be committed to is obeying God? Not obeying him with your religious rule, but obeying God, what he means, what he wants. When you know what he says, you need to commit yourself to doing it. That's what discipline is. You don't need to feel like it. You don't need to understand it. You need to say, I'm going to do it. 70,000 people die, and when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, stay your hand. And when the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor, I'm not even gonna pronounce those names. It's interesting, God sees man's heart turning aside from him and withdraws for a time, restraining his grace and presence. Some people I've heard preachers say, God will never you know, remove his grace from you. There are times where it seems, as you go through the Bible, God loved David, where he says, no, you're on your own right now. Let's see where this goes without me. Let's see. And it never turns out well. David finally gets it. Second Samuel 24, then David spoke with the Lord. When he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, listen to the difference in this confession. He said, behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. I can imagine God going, okay, now you get it. Before, remove the guilt from me, God. I don't want to feel guilty. Now, I'm wrong, God. I have done wrong. Behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. You know, David's confessions seem lame. They're, he seemed like my confessions normally. God, remove the guilt from me. A lot of times they're meaningless religious expressions of trying to get God to be on our side. And, The truth is our nation needs people right now that are dedicated to listening to him, to obeying him, to loving him. We need a national repentance, but national repentance always starts with individuals. We need people to be able to say, we as a nation have failed you, God. But we as individuals of this nation will not do that any longer. We're not going to redefine your terms. We're not going to put up with the things in life that 
that you have clearly stated our truth. Here's what the tragedy is sometimes, though. Sometimes the horse is already out of the barn. It doesn't help you to shut the barn door. We as a nation today stand $25 trillion in debt. Our definitions are messed up. Our leadership seems to be hatred towards each other. We don't know who to believe and not believe. And our nation seems complacent about it. There could be very well a crisis in the, in the future. Oh, you say there already has one with COVID. Could be that it's part, partially there. But the crisis is going to be a crisis of magnitude that will shock all of us, I'm sure. Do I know for sure that will happen? I, I don't. Because I do know that God, just like he stayed the hand of the angel over Jerusalem and didn't kill the rest of the people, he stops at times to honor the people who repent. David finally got it, and he said, God, I'm wrong. It's not about guilt. It's about me being wrong, God. I'm, not, I'm wrong. And God says, okay, let's stop this for a minute. But there were already 70,000 that were dead. I think there's been a tremendous amount of damage done to our country in the last couple of years. Damage that isn't repairable at this point because it's already happened. None of us can do anything about yesterday, by the way. But you can do everything about tomorrow. But we can't say that, okay, yesterday we got in debt, so we can't do it. No, but we can do something about tomorrow. And it all starts here, personally, being people who decide, I'm going to be a person who loves God, walks with God, and I am going to be self-disciplined. By that I mean, I am going to be somebody who does what's right when I know it's right. Even if it's inconvenient. Even if I'm hurt by it. Even if I don't understand it, I'm going to do what's right when I know it's right. We get enough people in our nation to do that and things will turn around. It's not your responsibility to change everybody in the nation. It's your responsibility to make sure that you're walking right with God. It's God's responsibility to change the nation. And, and if he doesn't, just like the tragedies through history, whether it be Hitler in Germany, there's people like Corey Ten Boom that raise up and that God uses to rescue his people. We need to be those people if there is a crisis that comes. We need to be the people that God would choose to use. Don't you know, in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Discipline, discipline, discipline. Put yourself in a position where whether you feel like it or not, you understand that one day, the whole world in which we live in, your life, it will come to an end. You'll stand before God Almighty. Be ready for that day. You don't know when that's going to happen, but live today in training for that day. 
we know some of the things he says in his word. You can start a list somewhere. Get it on your phone or your piece of paper or something, whatever. Just start a list. Here's what I know for sure. Boom. There's a God. I'm not him. You know. Then you act like it. I need to trust God, not money. Okay, good. I know that. I need to love people. I even need to love my enemies. I, and you start writing down the things you know. And you align your life according to what you know. And perhaps down the road, maybe I'll have to view it from eternity. But perhaps God would choose to use some of you to be the next Daniel, Esther, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Stephen? It didn't end so well for him. But it ended great, if you know what I mean. There are different days ahead for our nation, days that I can't even predict. It's my prayer that your group, this group here, can be a group that God would use to begin to change the hearts of our people back to him. Not in a judgmental way, not in ways, but in a way that, that's fueled by our obedience and fueled by our love and fueled by our own repentance. That, that our complacent hearts aren't complacent anymore. Because we know that God can do something. Even though we can't, he can. So we live looking for him to do something and making ourselves available if he wants to use us to do it. The alternative is to live complacent lives and let things go where they go and ignore that anything's happening. I think if, if I could give you advice that probably you've gotten so many times is you need to be those that are in God's word, know him well, know him intimately, and listen to him because I can't tell you what the, what's going to happen in the world ahead. But he can. And he can actually take you through it. And he can make sure that no matter what happens, you can walk in the fire when other people burn. So you want to walk with him and love him and listen to him. But that's, you got to do that now. you got to do that before the crisis. So that as the crisis comes, your stability is something that carries you through. His stability, his love. Interesting times you live in, that we live in. I take great peace in knowing that that God knows the future. I don't. You don't. Nobody else does. I don't care what they tell you about it. They don't. I could have never guessed that storm was coming in last year and what it did to us. I could not guess. I would never in a million years think that this nation would shut down because of a virus. Never. Boy, am I wrong. So I'm, I'm not the guy to come to and say, what's the future look like, Dave? Because I'm going to tell you stuff that I, here's what I think, and months later you're going to go, boy, was he wrong. But that doesn't happen with God. He knows. He knows. And that's why I want you to walk with him and know him and, and be committed to being that person that is a good repenter when you are faced with something that you know you need to change. And you're committed to the truth. And see what God does with it. Let me pray. Father, again, thank you that we can meet tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your, the stability that comes from you and walking with you and enjoying you. I pray that you will speak to each of the hearts in this room and that if it is your will, that you will use some of the people here, some of the young people here this summer 
to get our nation back on track somehow. We need to be a nation that loves you, where you are our God. I pray that somehow that can happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.